which is he's going to continue on with some of the things he did last time he was here. But then about 8.20, we're going to have Paul Scharf from Friends of Israel come up and give us a missionary report. And so he will come up here immediately after Wayne ends. And so stick around. That'll be right about at 8.20. All right, so let's start with a little time of silent prayer, and I will open us in prayer, and then we will turn it over to Dr. House. Okay? All right, let's bow. Heavenly Father, we thank you again tonight that we can assemble together as a local church and to open your word, to study your word, to look into how the many discoveries in archaeology validate what we already know is true from your word, Father. And we thank you for Dr. House's agreeing to come here tonight to share these things with us. And we ask that you help us to concentrate on what he asked for us today. And we also pray for our pastor, for his conference in Tucson, and for his safe travel home on Friday, or Saturday, I should say. And we pray all these things now in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Dr. House, you're up. Well, it's good to see you again tonight. We're going to continue on with some things we've been talking. Uh-oh. Just a second, I pushed it out. Is that back in? It came over the little hump there and it disconnected. Come on, you can do it. There it is. All right. I'll be careful with that. I was pulling it to get in the middle here and all of a sudden it pulled over. All right. Uh, We're going to continue on from where we've been going. We've covered in Israel, uh, we've dealt uh, questions relating to the Asia Minor and uh, didn't cover much in Jordan. I said a few things, maybe someday we'll go to that if the Lord wills and also Egypt, other places. Uh, some of you, who went with, anybody here went with, with us to Egypt when we went, okay, you were there with us in Egypt and uh, do that and, um, but uh, then I moved over to Greece and I was going to cover tonight Athens and Corinth and Delphi, uh, but uh, we're going to uh, shorten that a little bit tonight and uh, do that next time. Uh, I had a note that it's not on this particular slide because of, uh, you know, dividing it in two, but I have a little thing. I said something like next time we'll cover uh, Corinth and Delphi. Uh, we, we'll, we'll study a place that has ecstatic worship, uh, uh, poor uh, morals, bad manners, and what the perfect w- uh, will come, what that's talking about. And so I thought I would move to that. I've done a lot of work in First Corinthians and published in that area, and there's some things that maybe you haven't considered that, I, that, uh, that I'll discuss when, when that comes. But for tonight, we're going to do Athens only, and so let's sort of take the time to work through this then. First of all, I have a question, why the study of Greece? Because we have done Israel, and there's so much more we could do in Israel, but uh, we may come back to that sometime if the Lord wants that. Um, Israel's our first place to always go because that's where so many of the promises of God uh, are fulfilled and the people of God that we read in the Bible, where they lived. 
but Greece and Asia Minor, which we call Turkey today, it came from Turkey, the land of the Turks, in case you're wondering where Turkey came from. It really doesn't deal with the animal. Um, and I won't go into the story. I, I, sometime we'll have to talk about it. I, when I was leading a tour and how I dealt with that, but I, I, I don't want to take time tonight to do that. But uh, Turkey is a great place, Patmos, Greece, Macedonia, and up in the north, and so many areas of the Bible lands are, are significant. So why the study of Greece then? It's because you have a number of places that are important in the reference to the biblical text. Uh, for example, in what is called Achaia, we call Greece, uh, there are several important Christian churches. For example, you have Athens. Now, we, know, we don't have any clear evidence that uh, Paul actually started a church in Athens, but he certainly spoke there. And he spoke to a synagogue uh, that was present that they think they have found some of it, but it's not like the, some of the works there now that we can talk much about. It's just too obscure. But uh, with the Greeks there, of course, Corinth is important, and, and Delphi you don't really talk about Delphi so much in the Bible, but the problem is that uh, it is the center of the worship of, of Apollo, who is also the god of Corinth, the one they worship there. Uh, and uh, some of the things that we would talk about in 1 Corinthians are based on that connection between those places. Uh, that shouldn't say Delphi. Oh, that's just Delphi. Leave off the A. Uh, Thessalonica, or they say Thessalonica today. Arniki, uh, has some important letters, and of course uh, Berea with Acts and Philippi and Lydia. All these places occurred uh, in, this, in this place in the world, and so we need to be familiar with them. Uh, here's a look at a map of Greece and other areas, because not all the places, for example, are what we think of as Greece. Some of them are what are considered Macedonia. And remember that Alexander the Great, who was trained under Aristotle, uh, lived in the area of Macedonia. And so that's where Philippi is. Uh, it wasn't true what we think. It was Achaia. And, of course, uh, eventually uh, Alexander the Great obviously conquered all the Greek uh, cities and lands, going across, also going through Asia, all the way to India. And there's some fascinating things there to talk about, which we won't. But here's a map I found that sort of puts it in perspective for you. Uh, for example, you can see here that uh, you have uh, the area of Thessalonica is right here. area of uh, Philippi is right over here. And uh, this is what we call Achaia, and this is what we think of as ancient Greece. This is where Corinth was. This is where Athens was and a few other places. But this is actually ancient Greece. And, of course, in, in, in the period of history, uh, Greece has taken over some land up north besides where it was right here, uh, which was before the time of Alexander. Uh, you should know, for example, before Alexander the Great, and he had a lot of influence. It's amazing. A, a young man uh, trained under Aristotle makes a difference probably, but a young man whose dad was a king of Macedon, and he took off on a, on a, on a warfare with a new methodology in how to fight a war, because he's the one that came up with the Felix idea that the Romans picked up later, where you you marched like a tank, and people were pretty scattered before that, and they just ran over people with their approach. And, of course, he 
was very good at uh, making deals with countries and and not even having to fight sometimes. Like he didn't have to, he, there were no battles in Israel. There was no battles in Egypt. I mean, deals were made, so to speak. Uh, other places, no, especially when we think of the area of the uh, uh, the, the, the place of which you like had Alexandria and Babylon and Persia, those areas, uh, the Medes and the Persians. Uh, but Alexander did a lot of good. He put things together. There were three language groups when Alexander came up. All these cities in Greece and other places were city-states. Even though they were a city and had rural areas to them, they were a state in themselves. And then you had another state here and another state here, which are cities. It's only later that people begin to take all the groups in as, as cities within a country. So they call them city-states. And the Doric and the Ionic and the... And the uh, uh, what's the other one? Uh, Doric, Ionan, uh, and... Uh, I can't even think of the third one right now, whatever it is. But these three different language groups in the time of the wars of 10 years of wars, as Greeks traveling together, they formed, their own, they formed a, a, a common language between them, Doric, Ionic, and... I hate not thinking of something, but anyway, whatever, I know what it is. But anyway, the uh, the fact is these three language groups came together into one, and so we call it Hellenistic now, the language of the Hellenistic world. So a lot of neat things happen there. Now, when we get to Athens, Paul went to Athens. Now, uh, there was no church in Athens, and there was not an appreciable Jewish community like you found down in Corinth or even like you find over in Thessalonia, or you find in Berea. Uh, actually, Athens was a Greek city, basically, with paganism, not a synagogue. And it was thought for a long time there was no synagogue there, no Jewish presence. And yet, apparently, they have uh, discovered some things that indicate that there was at least some Jewish influence, and even in Athens, which is un, uh, unusual. Uh, and, and it becomes especially significant because the, the scholars that worked around the Areopagus and, and, and what we call Mars Hill and the area of the, uh, uh, the temples and so forth you're going to look at. Uh, what Paul talks about was strange in the hearing of the philosophers. So it must be that the Jews didn't have a lot of influence because uh, they hadn't heard some of these things before. But uh, there's this temple that we see here. That's a temple to Athena, where you get the word Athens, <laughs> she was the goddess of the cities. You find in a lot of the states like Ephesus, here, Philippi, and other places had gods or goddesses who were the champions of the individual cities, and they they protected them, so to speak. That's what they at least that's what they said. Uh, not the gods and goddesses, but the people. They thought this god is taking care of us, and they worshipped that particular god. That's why it becomes later significant when you have the statement of the unknown God. The Greeks didn't want to gamble. Nobody gets offended. Uh, and that's what came out of that because they came an unknown God just to be sure they covered all the bases. So uh, this is what you have on top. That's on the hill where you have the uh, uh, temple to Athena, the goddess of wisdom. And, of course, that makes sense, too, in being Athens. Athens was the academic center of the ancient world, more so like in Corinth or someplace. 
Well, this is looking at a place, I put a statement, this is where the beginning of democracy occurred. There was not what we call democracy as a system of thinking and government uh, until it happened here at Athens. Now, it's not like we think of democratic, uh, and I'm not using that in the sense of the Democratic Party or Republican Party. I'm thinking a, a broad concept that, in other words, our government uh, was built on a democratic system, even though it's a republic. See, the Constitution is a republic, a republican form. That is, it's based on a, a, a an agreement, but it's operated by the rule of the people underneath the, the document. So there's a, it's a balanced system. A pure democracy, the founders of this country hated the idea of a pure democracy. They fought against the idea of a democratic form of government per se because they, they believed that actually you would have people making decisions who didn't even know what was going on. And so they had a lot of smart people who were involved in in, uh, putting together the rules. And then people could decide through various means of of majorities. Well, this is where it happened in Athens. But here it was not the people in general. It was selected among the people who were actually democratic. Um, There were lots of slaves in those days. And obviously they were not participating in the exercise of power. And there were people that were not in the aristocracy. So it's not a pure democracy, even though we have that terminology um, ruled by the people. This looks down. I, I, uh, I used to stay in a hotel across from this place. This is a temple of Zeus. Now, and you realize in the Greco-Roman world that the Greeks called the gods one word, one name, and the Romans called them another. So you have Jupiter for the Romans and and Zeus for the Greeks. Or you had, uh, you know, you had uh, various d- gods of the ancient world like Diana for the for the for the Latin for the over against Artemis and so forth and so on. Uh, Venus for the for over against uh, Aphrodite and so the Greek and the Latin. But this is in Greece, obviously. So it's Zeus. And this is the temple of Zeus right in the middle of the downtown area of Athens. And uh, I, I put a couple things together so you could get a feeling uh, how tall these things were. If you go down there, and you can see this all over the, all over the city, this is Zeus. And so you see this, and I, I have some here. That gives you a feeling for how tall it is by the people that are standing there. So I thought that would be a helpful, helpful thing to show you. This is in pretty well disrepair, and nobody's fixed it. So uh, I guess because if it was a Th- Athena's t- temple, they probably would have done it. But, but since Athena was the god of the city, or goddess of the city. Now, Paul comes upon this because he's waiting on going down to Corinth and other places. He's been up in Philippi, and he's up in Macedonia and Thessaloniki, and he comes to Athens. Now, Athens was a beautiful city. And it was a city of intellectuals. This is the place of Plato. And, and uh, this is the place where you had uh, a number of uh, uh, famous philosophers and so forth. It says, now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked <laughs> within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, that's a pretty significant statement because all through the ancient world there were idols. Now, not in Israel per se anymore, but you know, at one point of time, Israel was even giving into this. 
but there were no idol worship. And so you, but throughout the Mediterranean world, through Asia and all these places, there were idols. So that he was specially moved about Athens is a significant statement. Uh, the preponderance of idols. It says he's, they're wholly given to idolatry, covered with idols, meaning the city, not the inhabitants. Petronius, a contemporary writer at Nero's court, and that is in the 60s of the first century, of, you know, of the, of the first century uh, A.D., he said it was easier to find a god at Athens than a man. They had so many idols and so many gods, they were big into idol worship, more so even than it was experienced by the apostle, apparently as he traveled throughout the world at the time. So their involvement in idol worship apparently was very, very, very large. He was stirred in spirit. The first impression which the masterpieces of man's taste for art left on the mind of Paul was revolting. (laughs) Now, let's look at it. How many of you have ever been to overseas and you've gone to museums and you've seen statues or maybe even gods and goddesses and so forth? Uh, I'm sure if you've traveled much, you've seen these. And we view them as works of art because they, there really was a lot of work going into making these things. Uh, and it demonstrates a tremendous skill of a sculpturer. But um, that's human taste. Paul saw it as a revolting experience. So he, uh, because people took these idols seriously, they were not just works of art, so to speak. Now, uh, it says that beauty had placed itself between man and his creator and bound him to the faster to his gods who were not God. <laughs> you got that? In other words, sometimes when you have things that say, well, this is beautiful, and yet people get in, uh, attracted to it, and maybe it leads them even to sin. Now, you can imagine that happening in certain situations because you have people that today even uh, are very scanty in how they dress and how they look in Hollywood, and yet that can be something they say, well, they're beautiful people. Well, not all of them are that beautiful probably, but they, what, they, what they do and how they act has an impact on us if we're not careful. We have to recognize that what they're involved in is not acceptable. And that's how Paul's dealing with it. It's not just a work of art. It's something that's separating a person from God because of how it is. And so... Uh, Uh, Paul wasn't intrigued by it. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Now I'm going to stop right there a moment. Something here is interesting to me. When Paul went to church, (laughs) whether it be the synagogue or the Christian church, either one, Paul spent time reasoning and arguing concerning viewpoints. Some people say, well, it ought to be about, you know, making us feel good and we'll come to church every week and we'll, know, we'll feel like we're better people than we were before we came. And, and uh, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of people in pulpits that spend their time wanting to make you feel better. And Paul was more concerned about people thinking correctly, it appears, because that's the term here. He dealt with them in logic and argument. In the synagogue, and when you read the epistles of Paul, you'll recognize he's also involved with all sorts of forms of logic in his argumentation regarding any number of biblical truths. Paul thought it was very important that people think 
correctly about their salvation, about their God, about Jesus, about the future. He wanted people that were knowledgeable and reasonable in their argumentation. You see a difference there? We, we are into a, 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 a feel-good period and not in a truth period. So now I'm not saying by that that you cannot deal with biblical text and the conclusions of these of how we ought to live. I think that's true. But there's reasons why we ought to be that way, and that has to be looked at. It's not just because we just said it. It's because there's a reason for saying it. And so I think that's what Paul's doing. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons who possibly were uh, like people like Cornelius who were what they called proselytes of the gate, uh, sometimes uh, Gentiles who were intrigued by Jewish thought, so probably they were in the synagogue in the Jew, at the, you know, along with the Jewish people. I suspect the devout persons are those, okay? But, uh, but also in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. So Paul said, let's see, what have I got for today? Oh, I'm going to go down and preach the gospel this day. And he did it all the time. He saw his mission to bring people to Christ. Now, having said that, I wonder if that's our mission. (laughs) Uh, Paul was intrigued constantly to say the truth and to bring people to the truth. He had a passion for doing it. And I think sometimes we don't have the passion. And we ought to, when we have opportunities, we ought to take advantage of each and every one. Now, that may mean that you have to actually have something to say, that you're actually able to come to evidence and, and present it. If people ask you questions, can you give them an answer? Uh, that's important. That's the whole concept of what is called apologetics. Apologia, that word that is the basis of apologetics, as you well know, refers to the idea of being able to uh, make a statement. Let's see, uh, apologia, to be able to make a statement of fact and, and evidence. It's uh, someone who uh, is is knowledgeable because they've taken the time to gain the knowledge. And so just simply uh, feeling good is not an acceptable alternative for us as Christians. Therefore, he set himself to lift up his voice to the idle city, but as his manner was, he began with the Jews. That's Paul's procedure every single time. I decided to wear my little shirt tonight said Israel because uh, I think we need to be in support of uh, people that God has plans for. <laughs> uh, there's some other people that God has plans that are not so positive. <laughs> but I think God has a plan for Israel, and I think we need to uphold the Jewish people. But the fact is, Paul always felt a compulsion to speak to the Jews, and so he always started with them, and by the way, it was easier to start with the Jews sometimes, probably, than it was to start with people who had no knowledge whatsoever of the Bible. Uh, you're going to see in a few minutes how Paul deals with this. But if you're talking to somebody who has no knowledge of the Bible, uh, I suppose one thing you can do is say, well, listen, sit down here. I've got the Bible. It's the inspired word of God. Believe everything I'm teaching you from it right now. That You could do that approach. <laughs> Or you could use reasoning that's consistent with the teaching of Scripture in order to be able to have a person to come to understand the truth. 
And see, read Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2, and you'll see what I'm talking about, in which Paul made a point of the fact that general revelation is given by God so that people will know there is, in fact, a God. And a person who thinks there is no God is not a very thoughtful person. Now, I know they may appear thoughtful, but as I'm going to show you in just a minute, the fact is the idea that that, uh, somehow that you can have... uh, Nothing to bring into existence something is a nonsensical concept. And yet people argue that. Well, it just popped into existence by chance. You have to have cause and effect for any action. Any result must have a cause. And anything physical is a result because it's not eternal. And so when you start arguing with someone and I mean arguing not in the sense of being nasty, but dealing with logic and ideas and argumentation, the fact is to argue, as some have, that the world just simply came into existence in and of itself is a nonsensical statement. You must have a first cause, and I'll show you that in just a moment. So we see in Paul flexibility in presenting the gospel. I have an article, if you ever want to read it, Uh, where I did on the whole question of how Paul dealt with a balanced view of apologetics and how he used different kinds of techniques in different settings. Because some people have a state and true method and that's all they will do and they'll not do anything else. Paul used a variety of ways by any way he could to bring people to Christ. Some people react to one better than another. And so you need to be versatile in that respect. So Paul is flexible in how he presented the gospel both to the Jew and to the Gentile, religious and the irreligious, the scholars and those not oriented towards scholarship. We see him spreading the truth. Uh, He had a certain goal. Now, having said that, the people he's going to talk to here on the Areopagus are the intelligentsia. These are all the people that are viewed by the population in a a very educated community. I mean, the Athenians were very, very smart people. They, uh, so uh, Paul could talk in a level with them. But sometimes if you find people that are not that way, you need to be able to talk on the level with them. And Paul knew how to move, maneuver. And uh, that takes some training and skill and, and forethought. So here we have Paul visiting, and he comes to the agora, he says, to the marketplace. Now what you're looking at here is an overall view. This is a, I hate this, there we go. There it is. I push this thing apparently a little bit when I do this. Um, This is a modern city of Athens, and right here in the middle of this modern city of Athens is a place called Agora. And this is a view of marketplace. But in Athens, and a lot of people don't recognize this, if you go to Athens with a regular tour group, you'll go to this area right here, which was considered the Agora of Rome. It was, in fact, a political Cult, uh, civic kind of, of place for people to mix. But just a few blocks from here, you can walk down the way and come to another agora, which was the official marketplace where people went to and bought vegetables and you know traded and talk, did gossip and all sorts of stuff going on. But these two areas had different purposes, and that's why I, I sort of view the one here that we're seeing these temples at as being like not a marketplace where you have trade as we think of it more of a town hall kind of setting a town square 
where all the kind of buildings and everything somehow related to the the religious and philosophical or or even uh, civic aspects of the run of the city. So that's what's here. And that's why you have temples here, and we'll talk about that. Whereas a few blocks down is where you probably went and bought your eggs and 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 other kinds of foods and and talked with people that you know that worked there. Okay. So, most people never just go to the other one. They don't even know it exists, but it's down the street. So anyway, uh, it was a marketplace probably mentioned here because of some things we see. So uh, let's move on, and I'll show you. This is the temple to the god Hephaestus. And I, and I don't know if you know anything about gods and goddesses of the ancient world. Uh, when I was a kid, I read all the time about everything. And I haven't stopped that yet. <laughs> I just like everything. So, uh, but what I used to enjoy also reading besides uh, Bible source correspondence courses and all sorts of things I took, I like to read Greek myth. And the story of the gods and goddesses, they were very interesting to me. And I read these. And so you find out about these various deities as they were envisioned by people. But you have to realize we have different periods of time. Uh uh, there was in the earlier history of Greece a true belief in these stories, these myths as being real events of deities. But as the philosophers came along and people like uh, Aristotle and Plato and, and so forth, when they came along, uh, Socrates, you know, the, who was the uh, one who taught uh, Plato, he, uh, he really did not believe in lots of gods and goddesses. He believed in one deity. This was very common in some of the circles of philosophers. Now, I don't want to go into all that story. Even what he came up with wasn't that great. But nonetheless, they had moved away from the mythology of the, of the former ages. And these are the people, though, that had developed a philosophy of life that we're going to talk about. See, the Stoics and the Epicureans weren't really so much into gods and goddesses like the people in general were. Now, they gave them lip service because it was sort of the official thing to do. But down in their writings and their teachings, they really didn't hold to them. And so, for example, the Stoics and the Epicureans that I'll talk about in just a moment, they weren't really into gods and goddesses. They were into philosophies of life, and we'll talk about that uh, in a few minutes. Uh, what, what you find is that this is the place to Hephaestus, though, historically, uh, who was the uh, god who was the blacksmith, so to speak. He created wonderful wonderful things for the gods and goddesses he was a he was a really big with his hands and worked with fire and all things and he's always so also he was lame as a god that's sort of a strange thing but he was a god who had difficulty his head he was lame as a as a deity and that's a uh, one to him this right here is another this is called the stoa and it's from the name stoa that you find here that you had to actually develop what are called the Stoics. See, the Stoics came from the Stoa, and mainly it was because of this. Uh, the word Stoic doesn't relate at this period of time when it was first used to the philosophy that we find the Stoics have. Like today people say, he's really Stoic in the way he acts. And that has a certain meaning to it that reflects the what happened in the life of the Stoics as the philosophers. But they were called Stoics because they studied in the Stoa. And so they received their name not from their philosophy but from their, the, the place in which they actually received their training and philosophers and their views that were. Uh, 
So this is a store of Atlas, and this is obviously a drawing you can see, but I'll show you the real thing in just a moment. Of course, I've walked in there in the building and looked through the rooms and all that kind of stuff, uh, and I don't have pictures of that, but I can show you the real one is right here. If you'll notice this a particular building, this is a store. It's a very big building, and for example, look here. This is the hallway of the building, just to give you a feel. It's a long building and big building. Remember I said at one time about the building on the Temple Mount that was called Solomon's Portico or Solomon's Porch where I argued that this is where actually the disciples were every day probably studying with Peter. Peter was talking and teaching and they were listening where the wind and finally the fires of tons of fire drew people in to hear Peter speak, right? That wasn't in the upper room. You couldn't fit hundred. You couldn't fit that many people in an upper room, and you couldn't put thousands of people in these narrow streets either. I mean, none of these things could happen in that setting. It just doesn't make any sense. Anyway, Jesus told them to, that they were to go and, and stay in Jerusalem until the Spirit comes and says daily they were in the temple. Didn't say they were in the upper room. <laughs> and there's reasons for this, as I talked about. But this right here is a stoa. And this is where a lot of the teaching went on, like a, like a school of philosophers. And so that's how the Stoics got their name. It's a big building. Um, now, let me show you on. Then we move into something that's pretty significant, and that is the, uh, the issue of the Acropolis. And so I'll run you through some things here quickly. It has the various temples on top of it. It also has uh, a lot of other structures and theaters connected to it, odiums where music was played, theaters where plays were done. You know, it's a big, important area with a beautiful hill. So if you sort of look here, oh, my goodness, there's a beautiful person next to the hill. But uh, these, this person standing on uh, Areopagus, what is sometimes called Mars Hill. And so uh, we run through here. And give you another picture. That's from another angle. That's from actually a restaurant, believe it or not. And then at night, I took the piss, and I thought this was really pretty. Uh, this is how it looks in Athens around the area of the Acropolis and and uh, the Temple of Athena and all these things at nighttime. And, of course, this is how it is more during the day. So... Uh, uh, Right here, you, uh, this will be all of us are standing when we do this at, at Mars Hill, as we call it. Now, I'm not even really sure. Mars is the Latin form of the word Eris, which is the Greek form of the god of war. So Mars and Eris, Latin, Greek, the god of war. And so they call it the hill, because the word pagas there, the hill of Eris or the hill of Mars. But everybody thinks Mars Hill because of the King James Version primarily. But the Greeks say Areopagus. And I found this picture too. I don't know who that person is, but he looks very similar to me. Um, I've got a question mark there. We may figure out who that is. But anyway, moving right along, uh, you have uh, a picture of this. Now, if you go on top, this particular temple uh, was held by two or three gods, including the god Poseidon who was a god also worshipped. Now, the Greeks had a primary deity, like at Ephesus, and like here, Athena. You had a primary deity who was the god or goddess of the city, 
But then you also wanted to give at least lip service to all the other gods. You don't want to make any god mad at you. And again, that leads us to the unknown god. Just to be sure we got the bases covered. And there's a story that goes behind that. But this right here is one to the god Poseidon. I've heard Hera would be the wife of Zeus. But whoever it is, you have these ones that were worshipped there. This is looking at this angle. On this side is where you have a theater. Uh, this is, again, another look at it. This has been restored for many, many years. It's just uh, just gone through a lot of trouble. There's that person again. It keeps showing up. I don't know. I ought to put her on a tour sometime. Here is a, a temple of Athena. Now, this is not, obviously, this is a drawing, too. How many have ever been to Nashville, Tennessee, in the, in the park there? They actually have a model of this, what you're looking at right now, the temple inside the goddess standing there, the whole bag. If you haven't done that, they have what they call the Parthenon in Nashville, Tennessee. And you can sort of get a feel that's complete instead of broken down still like the real one, <laughs> if you ever want to do it. But the goddess Athena was a god, obviously, of, uh, of wisdom. Uh, this gives you a view of the Agora from a different angle, the Agora of Rome. Uh, it shows you a little bit of how big uh, Athens is even today, and that's just a piece of it. Uh, this is an example of the uh, marketplace agora I mentioned to you a few blocks down from the ones that have all the temples. Uh, we discover that Paul, in speaking to these, is uh, he works with those in this setting now. He spoke in the Jewish setting, but now he is working with those uh, that are connected to Mars Hill. Now, notice the Epicureans and the Stoics converse with him. But the writer of Acts, Luke, he says the, the, the Athenians are, are the only thing they can think about is arguments. I'm talking about false ide- true ideas, false ideas. Going, they all the time arguing about stuff. So it sounds like some kind of seminary setting where, where the guys are out in the halls debating issues. But that's what they did, and they called Paul a picker of seeds. Is what the term is actually means, picking up seeds, a term of contempt for a pretended teacher. Others said he seemed to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching about Iesus and Anastasis. Well, they weren't familiar with these terms at all, probably. So they thought he's, that he, Paul was talking when he was talking about Jesus and the resurrection, that he was talking about deities because that's how their minds worked. Well, I'm going to pass over that and just move to the question of the Epicureans and the Stoic. They were enemies of each other. <laughs> you know, you, it's just like two, uh, two church groups that hate each other or something. You know, it's a, uh, I don't know how much of that occurs, but I'm sure there's some in which people have a rivalry. And so the Epicureans and Stoics, they uh, had divergent viewpoints. But the Stoics were the primary uh, religious philosophy of Athens, the Stoics. And the Epicureans were not as many. And I've already given you something here to understand it somewhat. The Epicureans were materialist. They were atheist. Whereas the Stoics were not, but they had a viewpoint that we would call uh, what we probably think of called pantheism or panentheism, one of the two, uh, in which they view their whole life was basically directed. They had no ability to make any decisions. Everything they did was in fate. 
and they live their life that way in very somewhat uh, tran- uh, tranquil, other somewhat just sort of uh, passionless. They were not into passion. Whereas the Epicureans, they were atheists, and they were in, thinking they were in charge of the world. They were on their, their own little gods. So you had these viewpoints arguing probably every day. When Paul wasn't there, they, you know, they, they just argued with each other. So they were really excited that Paul came along because now they got somebody else. And you think I'm kidding you on that. I think that's what's going on here. They were more than happy to talk about this idea. Now, I'll show you something here just very quickly if you want to take a look at it. Well, maybe that's not going to work like I thought. Oh, well, never mind. I'll just skip it. So this is what it looks like from the other angle. This is the hill of Eris or the hill of Mars. And this is going up it, although now if you look to the left, this wasn't there in my earlier years of going here. I've been here many, many times. They finally put in a stairway (laughs) that you didn't have to worry for your life. And this is what I mean by that. (laughs) I remember so many times coming down and trying to keep from slipping. And you don't want to do that on these stone, stone stairs. So they finally put in something wood that you can climb up and look at it. So that's what's happened. This is the kind of setting that Paul would have been in, in which he argued with these individuals who represented basically the Epicureans and the Stoics. It's like the Republicans or the Democrats kind of thing. They debated these kinds of questions. Here are examples. We found at least three, probably more, of the the unknown God. And Paul, when he deals with these questions... He actually doesn't quote the Scripture to them because they know nothing about the Scripture, but he uses what is called natural theology or the fact that God is seen in the world. Certain things about God are seen in the world. And so he tried to argue with them to get them on the right track. There would be a time in which he would move to Scripture, I'm sure. But that's how you have to deal with people sometimes. You you take those things in common and move from them from the known to the unknown. And that's sort of how Paul does it. If you want to read the chapter I've got on that, I'll be glad to send it to you. But uh, I dealt with that question. Now, next time I talk, I'm going to move into the question of Corinth and discuss the issues of, like I said, their ecstatic worship, uh, about their poor manners, their bad manners. They really were that really people like that. Certainly poor morals in a city like Corinth, uh, Paul was, uh, you know, what about going up to the temple of Aphrodite and, you know, and and worshiping a little bit? And they thought of it in those terms. And uh, they uh, also had a lot of problems with uh, many areas that Paul has to correct. And I'll talk about that next time when I discuss the issue of Corinth. But I'm also going to connect together Corinth and Delphi because you really need to understand both because they both related related to the religion of Apollo, the god, Apollo of wisdom and prophecy. That's what Apollo was, god of wisdom and prophecy. And he had a prophetess who was at Delphi called the Oracle of Delphi who would listen to speaking in tongues and then the prophet would interpret it to the oracle and then get a message from the oracle as to what was to be done or not done. And that has a lot to do with what's going on in Corinth. And I'm not going to say more, more about that right now. 
So that's uh, that's just a very you know brief looking at some of these questions. You can see there's some beautiful settings, and more and a lot of interesting information I'll talk about next time. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure how you want to do this. You want to have prayer and him come up. You want to let me end in a prayer and then we'll start. But I'm going to need to get this stuff probably moved around a little bit in just a moment and also transfer this. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for all your many blessings and thank you for our opportunity to be together and study things about the Bible, uh, things that help us to understand Scripture and get a view of what, how things were in the days of the church at that period of time. Uh, Lord, we just thank you for all the good things you bring our way and we're not left alone, but we have you constantly with us to keep us in the right way as we're faithful to you. And we pray now that uh, you would bless the uh, subsequent uh, uh, talk and all the things that are going on, that uh, Christ might be glorified. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good evening. It's an honor to uh, follow you, Dr. House, tonight. And it's a wonderful privilege to be back with you here at uh, West Houston Bible Church and to be part of the service. This came about uh, relatively last minute, uh, my trip here, that is. I normally would have been here about this time is my tradition. This is my third November in a row of being with you. But um, I was uh, set to be in Israel the last couple of weeks. Of course, that tour was canceled, and the Lord graciously allowed me to still have the opportunity to come to Texas here this fall and thank uh, Pastor Dean for plugging me in here tonight to have the opportunity to talk to you just for a few minutes. And uh, our theme is organized this evening around the subject of Kristallnacht. How many know what Kristallnacht is? It actually happened 85 years ago tonight, November 9 into 10, uh, 1938. 85 years ago tonight. And I had the privilege of writing a blog for the Friends of Israel that's running uh, still as the first blog on our page at foi.org on the subject of Kristallnacht by the same title we're using this evening, Walking Over Broken Glass. You can also read that article at sharperiron.org, and it's also up on raptureready.com. And I'll also uh, just remind you briefly that uh, you can find all my materials on sermonaudio.com. And if you'd really like to stay in touch with our ministry, sign up for our weekly emails, and you can do that by signing your name to the uh, sign-up sheet on the back table, which will give you a free subscription to our flagship resource in the Friends of Israel, uh, which is Israel My Glory magazine, which has gone all over the world now for more than 80 years. And we'd love to have you get that free subscription. I'd also really enjoy adding you to our email list if you're interested in that. That's uh, just a quick update. I'd be glad to take any questions after we're done, if you have any about our ministry or about the Friends of Israel. Of course, the Friends of Israel overall is heavily engaged right now in responding to the situation on the ground in Israel, attempting to give humanitarian aid in Israel. And God's people have responded in a magnificent way to all of that. You can find more details and you can uh, find ways to be involved on our website, of course. And there's so many things that uh, we should be praying for in these days, heartbreaking things that have happened to the people of Israel. 
and we want to pray for them and pray for the uh, peace of Jerusalem. And what a time for it to have happened uh, as we move into this anniversary tonight of Kristallnacht, which uh, the German word means, of course, night of crystal. It's a euphemism for what happened that evening, night of broken glass. And we're going to think about that. Just before we begin this short lesson, though, let me say I think it's especially appropriate, maybe I'm the first to uh, wish this to anyone here this evening, but I don't know if we have any veterans with us. Would you raise your hand if you're a veteran? We have a couple or three that I see. We want to say thank you for your service and a blessed Veterans Day coming up this Saturday, and I think that's particularly appropriate in light of our subject matter this evening. Well, to talk then just briefly about Kristallnacht and walking over broken glass, and again, I encourage you to read more on my blog article covering this topic. But 85 years ago, tonight into the early morning and even continuing into the next day, it was a Wednesday night into a Thursday in 1938 that really marked the launch of the Holocaust really began the all-out persecution of the Jewish people under the Nazi regime, 1938. I was thinking about what is a biblical illustration of Kristallnacht and really the Holocaust. And what do the Jewish people uh, think of in terms of something that would equate or illustrate what they suffered in Nazi Germany? And the best analogy that I can think of comes from the book of Esther. Now, I'm not going to ask you to turn there specifically. You can, if you'd like, and look up any of these scriptures. But we're just going to go very quickly through some verses on the screen tonight. Uh, We don't have time to obviously do an exposition of really any, much less the whole book of Esther. We don't turn to Esther very often, do we? It's a book that never mentions the name of God. He's certainly intimately involved with all that's happening, guiding by his providential care and concern. He's working all things after the counsel of his will. But he's not mentioned directly, nor is even the subject of prayer engaged in the book of Esther. And yet God was working in a marvelous way that we'll think about tonight. He's working even when people aren't aware, even when people are asleep. How many of you know the God of Israel doesn't slumber or sleep? He's watching over Israel. He was watching over the Jewish people, even, yes, even on Kristallnacht. And God's hand is evident behind the scenes throughout the book of Esther. I mentioned we don't turn to Esther very often. I was privileged to study the book of Esther in a seminary class with my mentor, my great teacher, Dr. John Whitcomb. And so I'm uh, drawing on several things that uh, he brought out and made clear principles from the book of Esther as we go through these things. You know, Satan's goal has always been to eliminate, to exterminate the Jewish people. Uh, That's a whole subject we could pursue, to attempt to thwart the first coming of Christ. Now to attempt, and through the book of Revelation we see, to attempt to thwart the second coming of Christ, the establishment of the kingdom of Christ. And he attempted that through Haman in the book of Esther. As I said, we're just going to cover some highlights here very quickly by way of the verses on the screen that 
If you're familiar with the book of Esther, which I trust all of you here gathered are, uh, it's going to be immediately familiar to you as sort of the fence posts that take us through the book uh, of how we have this wicked man, Haman, who came to rise to power. There's actually lots of intricate details in the book of Esther, by the way, that that intertwine with uh, themes in Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, because we're at the end of the Old Testament era. We're in between Ezra chapters 6 and 7. We're at a time in which Zerubbabel has led 50,000 of the Jewish people back to rebuild the temple. The temple, the second temple, is standing in Jerusalem. Esther and Mordecai didn't go back. In fact, they don't seem to really be concerned at all through the book with the temple, the priests, the sacrifice. They're not, they don't seem to be like Daniel. Remember Daniel in Daniel chapter 9 when he was praying and he was confessing the sins of the people and it was about that time that he received the great 70 weeks prophecy from the angel Gabriel And in Daniel chapter 9, it was as he was praying, speaking, confessing the sin of his people, that he saw this man Gabriel in a vision. And it was about the time of the evening offering. And friends, there hadn't been an evening offering in Jerusalem at that time for many decades. But you could take the boy out of the temple, but you couldn't take the temple out of the boy. Daniel lived his whole life in Babylon. You say, what time zone was Daniel in? I see all of you made it successfully through the transition of setting our clocks back last week. At least I guess all of you did because you're here tonight. You say, what time zone did Daniel live in? He lived on temple time. He lived his whole life around the temple in Jerusalem, even though there was no temple standing. Now there's a temple standing, but Esther and Mordecai don't go back. They seem to be rather, can I say, secular in their approach to life. Well, they attract the attention, though, of this wicked man, Haman, who says this, this uh, succinct statement, it is not fitting for the king to let the Jewish people remain. And you remember through the book of Esther, Haman appeared to be on his way to having success with this plan to exterminate all the Jewish people, which, by the way, all the Jewish people in the realm of King Xerxes in Medo-Persia, that would have included all the Jewish people who'd gone back, who were back in Judah, who'd gone back and rebuilt the temple, back in the Holy Land, They would have been part of this decree, as, of course, would Esther and Mordecai. Well, you remember that incredible line that Mordecai speaks to Esther in chapter 4 when he alerts her of this plot, and he tells her, Who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? What an amazing thing that was and how it turned the whole... Uh, direction of Esther's life, and on that hinge turned the whole future of the Jewish people. And you might remember also God being 
the Lord who never slumbers, never sleeps, always cares for his people, he was working in the night. One night when the king Xerxes could not sleep. Uh, How many of you know the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord? You, you say, what about, what are, how do we handle these powerful people in the world who are, have the power of life and death? They can make decisions. Are we on the verge of World War III? What will happen in the Middle East? What are all these different players going to do on the world scene? You know what? They're not going to do anything God doesn't ordain or allow. He is in absolute control, working all things according to his will, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. They're powerless to do anything but what he allows them to do. And so it is that even Haman's wife counseled him and said, If Mordecai is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. And you know what happened to Haman, they hanged him on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. And God brought victory through the efforts of Mordecai and Esther. And I'll encourage you to go home and don't take my word for it this evening in this very quick summary. But take this opportunity, uh, if there's another rainy day like today was, go home and read the book of Esther. Search the scriptures and see if these things are so. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in these things. I believe that Esther and Mordecai, in this book, they come across as being incredibly dedicated and courageous, patriotic, even unto death, but disobedient to God. They should have been, really, among those who went back to Jerusalem. They should have had a completely different God-centered view of life in the world, I don't think they're on the same level as Daniel, for instance, who, of course, served also in Babylon and Medo-Persia. They appear to be disobedient to God in their lives. And again, we can't flesh all of that out this evening. But if what I'm saying is true, they're really a picture of the people of Israel today. And uh, the people of Israel today, of course, for the most part, temporarily in unbelief, rejecting their Messiah, yet wonderfully dedicated, courageous, patriotic. We certainly support them in their fight against terror that they're engaged in at this time. We certainly support the Jewish people. We pray for them. We want to share the gospel with them. As Paul said, that his heart's desire, his deepest concern was that his people would be saved through acceptance of Christ Jesus. Yet, God, even in the unbelief of the people of Israel, remains faithful. Even as he was faithful to Esther and Mordecai, even as they were unfaithful at points in the story, and this is, of course, because of the covenant God made with Abraham, his unconditional covenant, which really is a paradigm for all the rest of history. God is working out that covenant from the time that he makes it unilaterally before Abraham to the end of history and the ultimate seed or descendant of Abraham, Jesus Christ, comes to rule as the Messiah in his kingdom. There's an interesting verse in Esther chapter 9 that's the only time that this kind of Hebrew expression is used in the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, 
And it talks about the result of all that happened here at what is going to be the institution of Purim, which is not at this time of year, it's in March, but it's the festival that came about because of the victory the Jewish people had where they could have been destroyed. See, in the book of Esther, it has this wonderful conclusion where the Jewish people absolutely overcome and overwhelm this attempt to destroy them. And as a result of that, the writer of the book of Esther tells us, this is the unique expression that's found only here, many of the people of the land became Jews, became Jews, because fear of the Jews fell upon them. And it reminds us of really the purpose God had for Israel from the beginning, to be a light to the Gentiles of God's salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, as wonderful as the book of Esther turns out, what happened on Kristallnacht is not a similar type of ending. Eighty-five years ago tonight, the destruction of the Jewish people in Germany and Nazi-controlled areas was an absolute bloodbath. It was terror. It was absolutely brutal. You know, in the book of Esther, chapter 7, verse 5, Xerxes asks Queen Esther regarding this whole plot to destroy the Jewish people and says, Who is he and where is he who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? The Nazis answered that question, pointing to themselves 85 years ago tonight. Unless you think that Kristallnacht was just an event that happened maybe in Berlin or here or there a couple of places, here's a map that shows the extent of the destruction in Kristallnacht. And obviously you can't study that, nor do we have time to go through it all here this evening. But I encourage you to look further and consider the magnitude of this event. I just have a few sort of blurry old pictures that cause us to realize, why is it called the night of broken glass? Because that was one of the hallmarks, the breaking of the glass and burning of buildings. You know, it's like this whole night is still sort of a blur. The statistics are very blurry. These come from PBS. They tell us that 7,000 Jewish businesses were demolished, 900 synagogues burned. That's probably very low. 91 Jewish people murdered, that's very low, especially if you take into account those that would die in the coming days as a result of the brutality they suffered. Uh, Women were raped, uh, people were brutalized, attacked, and many died. But here's a statistic that almost everyone agrees. 30,000 Jewish men, for the first time now, will be taken off to concentration camps. You can see the people watching. Of course, the German firefighters did not put out any of these uh, fires, but only protected German properties. And there's lots of interesting aspects to all of this, incredibly horrendous, but interesting, fascinating points that uh, I'll encourage you to read up on as you think about this anniversary that we're remembering tonight. But there they are marching, perhaps, to their imprisonment at the concentration camps 
again, Holocaust deniers will say, well, it's mathematically impossible that six million Jewish people could have been killed in the in the camps that the Nazis ran. Not if you understand the extent of the camps. They stretch practically from one end of Europe almost to the Middle East. This is a map from a Holocaust museum, a picture I took of it in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And here circled are the three camps where the men went on Kristallnacht, Dachau, Buchenwald, and Sachsenhausen. Here's a picture of uh, the six stages of the Holocaust. I wish we had time to talk through that this evening. But you'll notice the final phase is mass murder. These 30,000 men, uh, I'm sure many of them never returned from the horror of the concentration camps. Jesus told us that Jerusalem would be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So what we saw in 1938, what we are seeing today in Israel is in accord with God's prophetic plan, what God has chosen to allow, what Jesus has revealed for our Jewish friends who are in unbelief uh, at this time. And it's part of God's gracious and merciful plan to draw them back to himself, to bring them to faith, to belief, to life. We believe that will happen in the land in preparation to receive the kingdom that's coming, that their Messiah will bring them. Right now is a time of trampling on Jerusalem by the Gentile nations of the world. We want to pray for our nation and for our leaders that we will not be among those who contribute to this trampling down of Jerusalem, but be among those who bless the people of Israel. You see, God has created the nation of Israel and still sustains the Jewish people. They will never be destroyed because he has an eternal plan and purpose for them. He is going to bring them back to the land. He is going to ultimately bring their kingdom through their own Messiah. And he's doing it for his own glory, and he will ultimately save Israel physically and spiritually. As you read the book of Esther, add this chapter to your reading list, Isaiah 43 Isaiah 43 is the creation of Israel chapter. Just as God created the whole world of humanity through one man, Adam, so he's created the whole nation of Israel through one man, Abram. And God uses the very language of creation in Isaiah 43 to speak of how he's created the nation of Israel. He's formed them. He's created them for his glory. He's formed and made them. He is the creator of Israel. He created and formed that nation through Abram to whom he gave the unconditional covenant that I've already spoken of tonight. And if I could share just one verse with the people of Israel tonight, it might come from this same chapter, Isaiah 43, 2, a wonderful chapter. Again, I urge you to read it and meditate on it. But verse 2 speaks of the fact that when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. Verse 3, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And we pray again for God's people tonight. Well, as we close on the 85th anniversary of Kristallnacht, I want to tell you there is 
something God did. He, he, brought, he crafted a work of art out of the shards of broken glass that fell on Kristallnacht. There were the German, the Nazi Hitler youth and stormtroopers who I'm sure relished walking over that broken glass on November 9 and 10. But there were people in Philadelphia who were willing to walk over broken glass to help the Jewish people. You see, three weeks after Kristallnacht, on Thursday, December 1st, the Witherspoon Building in Philadelphia, three weeks after the Holocaust was launched, there was a response launched called the Friends of Israel Refugee Relief Committee. And so on December 1st will be our 85th anniversary as a ministry. And our early leaders and board members included men like Dr. Lewis Sperry Chafer, the co-founder of Dallas Seminary, Harry Ironside, the most loved pastor of the Moody Church in Chicago, Charles Trumbull, the editor of the Sunday School Times, and, of course, many other brave and courageous and wise people who risked, I'm sure, their very reputations to join this organization called the Friends of Israel, which was formed 10 years before there was an Israel. But in faith, these people believed that God would indeed return the people of Israel to their land. And we know the rest of the story that he has been doing that very thing, bringing them back into the land. They must be in the land for the prophetic future to unfold. And they will be brought finally into the land in belief, in spiritual life, to receive their kingdom. And so we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, that God would bring that kingdom to earth, and that in the meantime he would protect his chosen people whom he loves. Thank you for the opportunity to be here tonight. I invite you to take some time of your own and reflect on the meaning of these things. And so, Father, I pray that you will bless and uh, use the time that we have taken tonight to think of these very important matters. Use it to bring glory to yourself and to encourage each of us. Lord, help us to be more bold, more fervent, and more faithful in praying for the Jewish people and the peace of Jerusalem. And we pray this in our Savior's name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much. God bless you.